Hello and welcome to the Big Happy Life podcast. This week I wanted to break from the usual types of things I talk about to talk about eating disorders. Over the weekend we heard the news of Nikki Graham passing away and she lost her battle with anorexia. And I keep thinking about the torture that she would have been experiencing and the torture that her loved ones would have gone through as they tried to support her and they tried to help her and possibly really struggled to understand what it was that kept her stuck and kept her unable to do one of life's most basic things, which is just to eat for nourishment. As somebody who struggled with bulimia for over 20 years, I can't claim to understand the struggles of somebody who experiences anorexia because it's not the struggle that I went through. But what I wanted to talk about was the internal struggles that we face in our efforts to be something other than what we are and how deeply damaging that can be. So in this episode, I wanted to share some of the things that have helped me over the years I didn't find a therapist who was able to help me, even though I tried quite a few times to get help. And I ended up having to find my way out by myself. So in this episode, I'm going to share with you the things that have helped me along the way in case they help you or someone you love. Very important to say before we go any further is that I am not medically trained and everything that I am sharing with you has the basis of being part of my own experience and my own journey. And that's it. So... Listen, see what you think, take what's helpful, leave what's not. Either way, let's dive in. This morning I went out for a run and I tried to record a quick video that I was going to put onto Instagram going, you know, these are the two tips that I would share that would help you. And I found myself getting so tangled up because it just isn't that simple. And that's when I thought, you know what, this has to be a podcast because you have to be able to get to some of the nuances, to some of the depths of the difficulty, the kind of barbs and snags and sticky little buggery bastard things that exist within an eating disorder. And the things that make it seem from the outside like something brutally obvious as to what's required, but from the inside feels, oh my God, so complicated and so huge and so trapping that you can't easily figure out how to get out. And the things that work for you one day don't work the next day. And the things you think you've learned about yourself then somehow fall apart at some other point and you start going, what the hell am I supposed to do? How? How do I free myself? And then there's the exhaustion, the constant exhaustion from fighting all the time. It's really hard for other people to recognize the difficulty for somebody who has an eating disorder. When you think about the fact that you cannot escape food, it's a requirement for survival. So where somebody is trying to break free from a pattern that leads them to use drugs or abuse alcohol, that there is potential to live in such a way that you can avoid those things. But when your drug is food, you have to figure out a way to be around it constantly 
to interact with it in healthy ways, but you are already stuck in an unhealthy pattern. So you can't be free of the thing that is your demon while you work out how to strengthen yourself. You have to do the two things simultaneously. And that is so exhausting. If it's not something you know about, if it's not something you're experiencing yourself, it's really, really hard to make sense of that. Just think about all the ways in which we use food. Commiseration, celebration, comfort, socializing, all the ways in which we connect. If you think about every happy or sad moment in your life and the role that food has played whenever other people are involved or potentially the role food has played when you're by yourself. Look at parents with kids, how we use food as reward, how we use food as a bribe, how we use food to mark the good times and how they are differentiated from kind of standard routines. Oh, it's the holidays. Let's have an ice cream. It's a birthday party. Have the sweets. Go on. We're out for dinner. Treat yourself. Have a dessert. Never mind. It's the holidays. Don't worry if they eat a little bit too much because they're going back to school in a week. It's not going to matter. And when you think about all of those patterns and think about the way that we wrap emotions around food, it's very easy to see that an eating disorder has very little to do with food. Now, if you've had any exposure to eating disorders, it's likely you already know that. But if not, if you're new to this whole world, then you may be in the situation I was in at the start where I really did think it was about food and weight. I didn't want to get fat. And so the purging was about getting food out of me that had the potential to make me fat. And at first, it made me feel so powerful. Back then, if you'd have given me the choice to walk away, I don't think I'd have taken it. Because suddenly I was able to engage in social situations in ways that made me feel part of the group. I was able to eat the things that I had been avoiding for so long and suddenly I was free to have them. And I just kind of felt like I'd beaten the system. So yeah, back then I did think it was all about food. But now I look back at it and I realize actually there were some fundamental questions that I wasn't asking. Why was fat such a terrible thing? What was I so afraid of? What was actually in the way of me being able to engage in social situations in a way that made me feel part of the group? And why did I even want to eat that much food in the first place? Those weren't questions that I thought or knew to ask. And so on I went thinking that it was about food and weight. And yes, for the first year or so, I did feel powerful and I did feel like I was beating the system. And it was kind of fun, even though it was a bit gross. But when it stopped being fun and it stopped feeling good and I stopped feeling powerful and began to see that I was trapped in something that I didn't feel strong enough to get out of, I still kept trying to solve the food issue. So it became about being stricter with portion sizes or being stricter with the kinds of foods that I would allow myself to eat or being stricter with exercise. And those were the ways that I would tell myself I was now being healthy, but I still hadn't addressed any of the underlying questions. And so invariably, I'd end up back where I started. It wasn't until much, much later, in fact, I was already a parent and in my 40s by the time it occurred to me to ask those types of questions, by the time it occurred to me to start thinking about who I am and what I bring to the world and 
what my nature is and where I feel safest and most secure and what kind of environments I thrive in. And really compassionately and with complete acceptance begin to understand me. Only then did I realize that my eating disorder was always about me trying to be something else, trying to look at the world's model and expectations of me and fitting it and feeling that if I didn't fit it, that I wasn't good enough. And that not good enough feeling was at the heart of everything that went with my eating disorder. And, you know, the whole not enoughness thing is not news to most of us these days. It's plastered everywhere. But knowing it theoretically and truly in your heart and in your body, feeling enough, just as you are, are two different things. And so that's the first thing that I would encourage you to do if this is a road that you are on, is without concerning yourself with the eating disorder at all, just begin to learn about yourself. Begin to recognize your nature and under what conditions you feel able to shine or you feel at your safest and you're most able to be you. And recognize that if the environment you're in isn't one where that can happen very easily, that that's not an indication of you. It's not an indication of your worth. I actually stumbled across a YouTube video today. Um, I can't remember who it was. It was a, a Buddhist monk. And he was talking about things he wished his therapist had told him back in the days when he used to go for therapy. And this particular thing was one of the things he said um, about him going, not feeling sociable, not feeling able to shine the way his friends did. And so his therapist helped him develop strategies so he felt more confident in social situations. But it was years later that he started to realize that actually the reason he didn't feel confident in those social situations is because that's not his nature. And that where he found that he shone was in situations where he helped other people deal with pain and suffering, the loss of loved ones, the facing of a disease, the difficulty of a divorce or an accident that leaves the person with life-changing injuries. And he found that in those situations, on those one-to-one -one basis where people were so stuck and so traumatized, he shone. That was where his nature and his ability to be quiet and still and to listen became something that was exactly what was needed in the moment. And so in this video, he goes on to talk about the link between environment and us and saying, you know, the social situation isn't wrong and I'm not wrong, but when you bring us together, the combination just doesn't work. And he likens it to being a rose in the Nevada desert where you're comparing yourself to cacti and so you don't know you're a rose and you're looking around at all the other cacti and going they're so strong and they're so this and they're so that and trying to find your way to become a cactus but actually if you took the time to understand that you are a rose and to understand what that means you would have a much better understanding of how to care for yourself and what environments suit you best. And so that's where I would encourage you to start, 
is to begin looking at yourself with the kind of openness that will allow you to begin to understand what it is to be you without the world's expectations, the expectations of the environment that you live in, without comparison to other people and what they bring to the world because you're not them, without the judgments that you've learned throughout your childhood, without the stories that you've been told and the stories that you now have taken in as part of what it means to be valuable. I think when we begin to look at ourselves without all of that stuff, it provides us with more opportunities than just trying to live in the way that we see others living or trying to be the way we see others so that we can compare in ways that we feel okay about. Now, whether you have an eating disorder or not, that is something well worth doing if you have any kind of not enoughness that plays in your life. But when it's an eating disorder, there are other things that may also be useful. Something that really helped me and was actually totally counterintuitive was to stop fighting it. If you struggle with an eating disorder, you'll know what I mean by that sense of fighting. There are these early telltale signs, the kind of tensions rising, you feel the claws kind of scratching, those emotions that feel horrible, the knots in your stomach or the tension in your shoulders or whatever it is physically that tells you kind of it's coming for you. And you think, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to do this. And so you try for as long as you can to hold that space and to go, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to. But the tension never goes away. So it keeps rising and you keep feeling it coming for you. And then there's the sense of inevitability where you know you're not strong enough to fight. And then you kind of almost trance out. It's like it's not you anymore once you've given in to it. So there's this escalation towards a fight and then a recognition that you can't win the fight and then like everything switches off and you just freewheel down the hill. Like you've, you've left the building, you're not there anymore and the behavior sort of runs itself. Now, there's all kinds of mindset stuff in there and all kinds of things that are worth unpicking. But for now, in the efforts to not make this a two-hour episode, um, what I just wanted to reference was the one key thing that got me started, and that was to stop fighting and instead to start paying attention. See, when it comes to eating disorders, the thing I don't think we really consciously realize is that it's not a separate entity. It's us. The eating disorder is you. It's me. And so when we fight it, we're kind of fighting ourselves. We're fighting a part of ourselves that has developed a behavior that we don't like. And so we're rejecting it. And so I think that does two things to us. Number one, it reinforces that sense of rejection, which is ultimately what we're running from in the first place. And two, that reinforcement causes additional stress. And when stress rises, we revert to a loop that leads us back to our coping strategy, which is the eating disorder. So I think the fighting it is part of what keeps it alive. Now that seems really counterintuitive, but what I found was that when I started to pay attention to it, when I started to try and figure out, to try and go into it, instead of being in a trance state, like I'd given up and I've left the building, I went into it with my eyes open and I started going, okay, if I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do it consciously. I'm going to do it through choice. 
but it didn't feel the same. It didn't give me the same numbed out effect because I actually realized that I wasn't comforted at all. And that actually the relief was coming from giving into my own self-loathing and disgust. And so that was a big shock. That was where I started going, okay, well, let's deal with that. Because why am I disgusted with myself? Why do I loathe myself so much? And why wasn't I conscious really of that until now? Where has it been? What's keeping it alive? Of course, I don't know what your particular gremlins are. I don't know what's driving your particular patterns. But I still believe that if you can give them the airtime, hear them, find out what they're saying, and don't fight so hard to not feel, I think you'll find insights that will ultimately be the keys to free yourself from the patterns that you have been trying so hard to free yourself from. Doing this work hasn't been easy for me, and I doubt it would be easy for you if this is something you're experiencing too. And I'm also well aware that the suggestion of not fighting, but rather giving in to the patterns so that you can observe them is potentially dangerous depending on where you are in your eating disorder journey and whether your body is strong enough to sustain any more. But like I said before, all I can share here is what worked for me. And because I was doing this on my own, because I didn't find the therapeutic interventions that I was able to get access to particularly helpful, there's every possibility that I took the long way around. But of course, my issues started back in the 90s. So the, the challenge there is that I don't think eating disorders were understood the way they are now. And there's every possibility that you would have access to much better therapy than I had access to at the time. But I still maintain, whether you're doing this by yourself or you're doing it with a therapist, one of the key things that was a turning point for me was that I stopped trying to fix a problem. And I just started the process of trying to understand myself. And that leads me to the second key piece of my puzzle and potentially something that will be of use to you as well. And that is what Joe Dispenza calls the generous present moment. For me, this has been about more than just mindfulness. I know what I've described already when I talked about compassion and acceptance and kind of getting into the heart of what's driving you had an element of mindfulness to it. It's about paying attention to what's happening in the moment. But there's more to it than that. And as a mindset coach, I'm seeing that with my clients as well. So much of the trouble we experience comes from the stories we tell ourselves and the fact that we are more or less living in the past. So in my case, when it came to the eating disorder, what would happen when I felt those claws start to scratch is I would instantly be drawn to the stories of all the previous times I had felt those claws and been unable to fight. I would remember the times where I'd spent hours agonizing only to eventually give in anyway. And so that feeling of inevitability would overwhelm me and I'd think, Do you know what, I may as well just go with it and get it over with. But after watching Rewired on Gaia and also reading The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, Eckhart Tolle, depending on how you prefer to pronounce it, I really started to pay attention to this idea of the present moment being all there is. The fact that the future and the past 
exist only in your mind. And therefore, the things you're using to create them are the same things you could use to dispel them. Now, the trouble I always had with this idea was that somehow that made it my fault. Like, if it's only in my head, then I'm doing it to myself. And that's another reason to judge me. That's why I started with compassion as the first thing to focus on. Because I don't think those kinds of thought processes are helpful. I don't think they drive us to the place where we find the keys and we free ourselves. I think we have to be able to recognize that the fact that we've been trapped for so long is not a fault. It's simply an indication that we didn't know how to free ourselves. We didn't know we could. I certainly didn't. I had no idea how powerful I could be in my own mind. And even now that I know that, it's still sometimes difficult. And I still sometimes run old patterns. So knowing this and being able to do it are not the same thing. But again, if you can always approach with compassion, if you can always approach with curiosity and that sense of, okay, what made this one more difficult? Because last time I was able, but this time it got the better of me. What else is going on? Take the opportunities to know yourself. Take the opportunities to be kind and to learn and to listen to your emotions. In previous episodes, I've spoken about the value of emotions and the fact that there are no good or bad emotions. They are only signposts. They are showing us something. They're telling us something. And when we fight so hard not to feel and so hard not to listen, we keep ourselves trapped and we lose some of the power that we possess. And so those are the two things that together have been the most freeing for me. The ability to approach with compassion so that I can feel and listen to my emotions and the sense of being able to be in the present moment recognizing that multiple choices are available to me. One choice feels most obvious because it's the one I've run from patterns and patterns and patterns in the past, but to run it again now is only because I'm telling myself the same stories. I'm running the past in my head and making my choices based upon it. But when I can bring myself to the generous present moment, I can see that there are dozens of opportunities and options available to me. They just aren't the ones that I've selected in the past. They can be scary. There can be risk associated with them. But the minute you try to do something different, the minute you do something different, you can't try to do something different. You either do or you don't. The minute you do something different, you create another possibility. You create another story. And every time you do that, you've done it at least once. Don't worry about the next time. Just worry about this time. And when you've done it at least once, the next time it comes to mind, if you do tell yourself a story, draw your attention to the power that you had in the moment where you did it. Gradually, those stories mount up and you start to have a new story about who you are and what you're capable of and the power you hold. So as I record this, I'm around two years free of a binge purge cycle. The claws still come for me. That hasn't changed. But I now have so many other options available to me in those moments when those feelings arise. 
And because of that, I feel powerful. I feel strong enough. Looking back, I realize I always was strong enough. I just didn't believe that I was. And that was part of the story in my mind. And it was part of the fact that I had placed myself as the adversary to bulimia. So listening to this, I I really hope this has helped give you another way to think about your experiences with food and with an eating disorder if you struggle with one. If you know somebody who does and you think this will help them, please pass it on. If you need support and you want to reach out, you can email me, natalie at bighappylife.co.uk. Don't worry about whether you need a coach or not. I'm not going to sell you anything. If you need help and you don't know who else to talk to, then get in touch. There's no reason for any of us to go through these things alone. And I think the more we help each other and the more we stand together and learn about the kinds of patterns that bring these things into our lives, the better placed we'll be to help other people, to raise generations of children who are stronger in the face of the kinds of feelings that are associated with these patterns. And we'll end up much more likely to have healthy regenerative, strong ways of dealing with our uncomfortable and difficult emotions and experiences. If you have comments or questions, I would love to hear from you all the usual places, Facebook at Big Happy Life page or the show notes you can find at bighappylife.co.uk. For now though, thanks for listening. (laughs) 